Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. Yeah, yeah, they raised a small seed round of $750,000, and then for years they couldn't attract mainstream generalist venture capital. With the feedback of, you know, market's too small, we watched the clean tech 1.0 boom and bust and aren't interested in the sector anymore. Right. And I think it really took, you know, a venture firm that could see their vision and have a slightly contrarian take on the market size and whatnot to, to make that investment. Um, for They tried to raise capital for years, couldn't. So they actually operated profitably for about five years until they were at pretty decent scale. And then we came in as their first real institutional investor and led the Series A. That was in late 2018, 2019. Yeah, and fast forward, and now it's one of the best-funded climate tech companies out there, at least in the U.S. They've definitely been on a tear ever since. Yeah, we actually have we participated in every round they've done. We actually co-led their last round, which is a Series D, out of our growth equity platform. We can talk about later, but yeah, they've they've raised a ton of capital. I think more importantly, they uh, they service a ton of customers and have processed in, you know over 10 million solar projects at this point in their software, and so it's just one of those great stories of aligned financial and and impact returns. All right, Tyler, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, thanks for being here. Would love to get started with, you know, I often ask folks like yourself for a little bit of background on everyone's got such a unique path into how they got into working on climate tech or supporting climate tech companies. What's kind of your story on that front? Totally. So I studied environmental engineering in undergrad and actually started my career as a solar engineer. I actually to this day, I walk to our office in here in Chicago many years in the future past one of the buildings that I worked on 10 years ago. Nice. Back when solar really was not economical and sort of, you know, at the more mature state it is today, mm. we did a solar array up on like a 30-story building that purely wanted it for LEED certification. Uh, but it is fun to, to see that project basically every day I walk into work. Uh, so my first gig was actually trying to get a solar company off the ground here in Chicago, in sunny Illinois, <laughs> for some reason or the other, that did not go as planned. And so I took my degree and went over to the dark side and joined Accenture as a management consultant, where <laughs> nice. I stayed for about half a decade uh, working with power companies all on similar topics. So mm. many you know, power companies across the country were grappling with how do we put in place a, a decarbonization plan and investment strategy that accepts or embraces some of the emerging technologies that we can talk about later, right. uh, but they didn't really know where to start. So we did a number of projects around electric vehicles, batteries, uh, solar, et cetera. And after that stint, which I you know, really enjoyed working on implementing technology for what I'd characterize as the larger incumbents who have become really important forces in the whole decarbonization journey we're on, I decided to make the switch over to the investment side and joined uh, Energize as one of the early employees where I remain today. Excellent. And remind me, when did you join Energize? It was in 2018. So it's been a pretty incredible five-year run so far. Yeah, coming up on the five-year mark. That's right. You know, what was some of the... I'd be interested in hearing about, we can get into a lot of the stuff that you're currently thinking about, but I'd be curious, you know, in 2018, the climate tech investing environment was, you know, very different than what it is today. I'd be curious, like, what some of the first things that you all were looking at were back then and kind of where you dove in, and then we can chart how that's changed over the last five years too. Great question. And you're exactly right. The ecosystem was basically non-existent. There was a few firms around that were taking a new cut at climate and clean tech investing after several years where 
funding and limited partner interest in the entire space was basically non-existent coming out of the whole clean tech 1.0 boom and then bust. Mm. And so with Energize, the whole goal from the start was to take the learnings from what worked well in clean tech 1.0 and really concentrate just on that digital application layer where if you look back at the the returns, the returns were quite good in in software and asset light companies that were started and exited in the whole clean tech 1.0 boom. Got it. And so our objective was to take that learning and implement it in a an entirely different market environment where customer demand for renewable energy and climate technologies was much higher. That I think generally speaking, the other conditions around starting companies, including talent and startup costs, were more attractive. And we felt like it was a good time to to really build a firm that focused only on climate tech and on Mm -hmm. that digital application layer to be the partner of choice for entrepreneurs who are building companies in that category. Awesome. And what were some of the the early investments that you were active in diligencing and helping kind of push over the line that, you know, stand out to you from the first couple of years of the firm? And I'm sure that some of those companies are still around making a big impact. Yeah. So one of the first investments I helped lead with Energize was in a company called Aurora Solar. Hmm. They provide software to solar installers really with the vision of squashing down the soft costs, which have become pervasive in specifically the distributed solar industry. So think, you know, rooftops like houses and commercial facilities. And, you know, one of the reasons why we made that investment was something from my early experience as a solar engineer and attempting to build a solar company. Right. I experienced a lot of the same pain points that Aurora was addressing, which is a lot of manual work going back and forth between the site to take measurements, ultimately creating inaccurate designs and proposals that just added cost and friction into the system. Yeah. Aurora was started with the vision of providing tools throughout the solar installation and project lifecycle that really make the lives easier of the entrepreneurs who are building solar companies themselves. And so <laughs> that really spoke to me and fit our thesis, you know, really perfectly. And one of the things I'd note about that investment, which was fascinating, is Aurora had a very difficult time raising venture capital for years mm. and years. In the early stages? Yeah. Yeah. They raised a small seed round of $750,000. And then for years, they couldn't attract mainstream generalist venture capital with the feedback of, you know, market's too small. We watched the clean tech 1.0 boom and bust and aren't interested in the sector anymore. Right. And I think it really took, you know, a venture firm that could see their vision and have a slightly contrarian take on the market size and whatnot to, to make that investment. Um, for They tried to raise capital for years, couldn't. So they actually operated profitably for about five years until they were at pretty decent scale. And then we came in as their first real institutional investor and led the Series A. That was in late 2018, 2019. Yeah, and fast forward, and now it's one of the best funded climate tech companies out there, at least in the US. They've definitely been on a tear ever since. Yeah, we actually have, we participated in every round they've done. We actually co-led their last round, which is a Series D, out of our growth equity platform. We could talk about later, but yeah, they've, they've raised a ton of capital. I think more importantly, they... Uh, they service a ton of customers and have processed in, you know, over 10 million solar projects at this point in their software. And so it's just one of those great stories of aligned financial and, and impact returns. Yeah, and I think it speaks really well to the focus that you all have as a firm where it's like identifying software that's really going to aggressively help scale hardware in the physical world to make an impact. So, you know, sometimes folks get caught up in this, like we need more 
hardware innovation to solve climate change. And that's certainly true. But something like Aurora Solar can be a super important complement to scaling something like distributed solar. So it's kind of the way that it works together in my mind. And just to respond to that point, yeah, it is impossible for us not to touch hardware and equipment and infrastructure at some point. Like That's the only way that we can actually decarbonize the industrial economy. Our whole view is that when it comes to venture capital at the earliest stages, in order to have a significant impact in the next decade, that venture capital can best be weaponized to generate those you know, returns for LPs and have big impact by accelerating technologies that are already proven today mm-hmm. that are commercially available, that are economic, but are suffering from an ability to scale up and deploy faster. Right. So if you were to like put us in a, a square box of you know the deployment versus innovation and uh, software versus hardware, we tend to focus more on the deployment with software side of the equation. That's where we think you know venture capital is best employed. Right on, yeah. And there are you know other important parts of the capital stack that are that exist now for you know actually going out and building utility scale solar power plants. So that's not always the venture capitalist's job, which is important to remember. Totally. Yeah. Whether you're talking about project finance or there's also very creative, you know, venture strategies that have longer dated fund cycles or uh, scientists and technologists on staff who are really well suited to do those deeper tech type of bets or to take less risk on the project finance side and really scale up the infrastructure itself. Our world view is just that, you know, for our investment thesis and strategy, we're really targeting this asset light deployment layer. Yeah. And fast forward to 2023 in the present day, you know, if in 2018, there was a really unique opportunity to invest in digital solutions that would help with the deployment of things like distributed solar, what are some areas that you're interested in now where you see a similar opportunity to accelerate the deployment of other technologies? Great question. It's changed a little bit throughout the years, but it's kind of a boring answer in that a lot of it has (laughs) stayed the same. Fair enough. Um, We remain very focused on renewable energy, Mm. solar, wind, clean firm power being a few of the categories. We are increasingly interested in electrification as a complement to decarbonizing the power generation sources. And so that would include batteries, transmission technologies, electrifying transport and buildings, and then also on the demand side, uh, leveraging flexibility in, in virtual power plants to match that load to the, the supply side production. Right. We are interested in carbon markets increasingly. We think there is the opportunity to leverage technology and markets to pull newer fangled technologies like direct air capture down the cost curve. We are also still investing in infrastructure resiliency. So it's, you know, one, it's one thing to actually address the emissions. It's another to live in this, the world that we've created. And so we are interested and remain active in uh, physical climate risk modeling, uh, different software solutions that help workers and families deal with implications of, of rising perils and disasters. So those mm-hmm. are just a few of the categories that, that we're investing behind today. That actually remained pretty similar to when we started in 2018. Yeah, I love it. I think electrification in particular is interesting because there's so much that rolls up into that. Be curious just to hear about whether it's a few companies or technologies or even like opportunity areas where you don't see like that many companies sprouting up yet. Like what are just some of the main like challenges that you're seeing in that space that would be really kind of ripe for for new solutions? Totally. And I'll probably provide the lens uh, that we have, which is primarily work in software and digital applications best serve this electrifying everything trend. So I 
you know, went through a few of the technologies we think are sort of the core tenets of addressing the first 60 to 80% of emissions in any given geography. Mm-hmm. It's solar, it's wind, it's clean from power of some form. So whether that's geothermal, hydro, or, or nuclear, mm-hmm. it's batteries to help with the intermittent production from solar and wind. Mm-hmm. It's transmission to move all that stuff from the middle of the country to the points of end consumption. Yep. And then it's the three categories I mentioned before on the demand side. So electrifying buildings, electrifying transport, and then uh, demand flexibility. Of those categories, the ones that we are most bullish on, and there's a number of factors that, that we look at, which I'm happy to go through, solar, EVs, and EV charging, and batteries mm-hmm. are kind of the highest priority for us. Nice. These tend to be the fastest growing sectors. They have high soft costs. The markets are fragmented. And generally speaking, that's where software can really play a big role nice. in helping those industries scale up. Right. Some of the categories which have been, frankly, more challenging for us uh, from a software lens have been transmission, mm-hmm. wind, which is perhaps a bit surprising, and uh, clean firm power, those you know larger scale plants. In general, it's been more difficult to find software, pure play software opportunities in those spaces. Got it. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the on those that you're bullish on, I'd love to dig in a little bit deeper on like, what are some of those kind of software and digital solutions that you think can, for instance, in batteries, like better enable more deployment of whether it's distributed energy storage in homes, or maybe also some of the grid scale stuff that's going on. Sure thing. We're also investors in a company called Twice. It's a German company based out of Munich, started by two PhD students that were actually studying battery degradation uh, for their PhDs. And this is really understanding how batteries react to and behave based on how you're charging them. Mm. And I think anyone who has an iPhone would probably recognize this problem. If you are charging it in short spurts and not giving it that full cycle to charge throughout the night, your battery will actually degrade faster. So you you might notice that your phone is only lasting for six or seven hours when before uh, when you first got it and might last for 12 to 14 hours. Right. Take that problem and then just magnify it and, and increase the scale by, you know, 10 or 100 fold when you're talking about electric vehicles or a massive uh, grid scale battery plant. Right. Now we're not talking about, you know, maybe a 20 to $30 battery. We're talking about a, a $10,000 battery in an electric vehicle or, you know, multiple millions of dollars of batteries in a grid scale storage facility. And so what Twice does is they leverage software to actually predict how that battery will behave with a variety of charging strategies mm. and then inform OEMs, uh, grid scale storage operators, fleet operators on the best strategies to, to maximize the life of that battery and generate you know meaningful savings as a result. Yeah, it's such a good example because I think it is so familiar to folks from having the iPhone that you know batteries have this sort of uncanny ability and i forget what the exact word for it is but to like learn and adjust to a new charging level if you don't necessarily charge them up all the time or charge them in different ways and yeah it seems like sometimes people think about batteries and they're like oh yeah like chemistry is getting better they're getting cheaper but there's still all kinds of other potential challenges and opportunities to improve them that that go beyond just like you know power density and stuff like that that's right i mean i think we saw a very similar dynamic in solar which was for a decade it was about getting the cost of solar panels down, which mm-hmm. we did, you know, through manufacturing scale and learning curve dynamics, we took the cost of crystalline silicon solar panels down 90% from 2010 through 2020. But if you actually look at the installed 
cost of those systems and add in not just the hardware and the equipment, over time, the soft cost component, which is you know customer acquisition, permitting, engineering and design, operations and maintenance, that actually became the dominant driver of cost in solar. We think we're seeing a similar dynamic emerge in batteries and electric vehicle charging for that matter. And that we've done all this incredible work on the underlying technology and chemistries and continue to, to innovate on that front. Mm-hmm. But when you actually now look at batteries going into the field, the costs are not necessarily coming from the hardware not working properly. It's from all this other stuff that's accumulating. And that's where we think software can play a really important role to both deliver a better product, but control those costs. Yeah, got it. That's a good distinction to draw. And I like how we kind of tied it back to, to some of the earlier examples around solar. I'm also curious around, you know, still such a, there's so much within talking about batteries and EVs and stuff like that. Are you seeing interesting things on kind of with respect to EVs? I know you mentioned virtual power plants, but I'm also curious about like vehicle to grid and some of the like optimization and harmonization opportunities around like deploying EVs as, as energy storage? Is that something that y'all are tracking? It's funny. Again, that tends to be boring answers. We start usually with what are the clear pain points that consumers or businesses are facing mm. when adopting a new technology? And again, try to tie it back to an experience that people might actually recognize as an electric vehicle owner. Yeah, um, If you have an EV, it's hard enough to <laughs> figure out how you charge the thing when you're taking a long road trip. You have 10 different applications, you show up at a charging station and uh, 30% plus are uh, you know not functional, right. require maintenance. Uh, and then you actually plug the thing in and you can't even figure out how to pay for it. And so from our standpoint, there's a lot of basic blocking and tackling mm. that we still need to do for electric vehicle owners and for the deployment of EV charging. Yeah, And that we're actually investors also in a company called Monta Charging or Monta which is uh, based out of Copenhagen. Nice. And their entire vision is to kind of stitch all these disparate needs of EV drivers together into one application that's super easy to use, Mm -hmm. that spans multiple charging networks, equipment, and hardware is agnostic to all of those things, but enables them to do the simple things like scheduling a charging session or making a payment. And on top of that, we think we can layer on all these more advanced, sophisticated use cases like smart charging, like vehicle to grid, like virtual power plants. But so much <laughs> of the work is just getting the simple shit right, if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah, no, that's a good reminder. I mean, I'm jumping the gun sometimes trying to talk about all this fancier stuff, but, you know. Look, I'm an engineer. This is like, I live and breathe that, like actually in school way back in the day, I did uh, research on direct air capture. And I think one of, and it was like, you know, always what's the next cool thing that we can work on. And one of my realizations back then was, well, this, like even just taking this thing from the lab into the field is, is such a challenge that, yeah. I mean, and then you scale that thing up, you know, a hundred or a million times over. And that's when the real engineering work comes into play. So, and it is a good reminder too, because, you know, I think when folks look at the climate, climate change challenge on the whole, we focus so much on like, yeah, we do need more hardware innovation, but like we have a lot of the available solutions that would make a really significant impact. And it's, you know, as you've pointed to a number of times in this conversation, it's the deployment and soft costs and soft time that it sometimes takes to get that done around all of that. That's just as much of a barrier as things that we haven't quite figured out yet. Totally. And to be clear, we still need to be working on the next generation of technologies. Like they need to stack and layer over time. For sure. It's just, we have a set of technologies that works today. We need to scale the hell out of those for the next decade. And we need to be investing heavily in R&D and other forms of capital 
models in the next generation, which we're, we track and are interested in. It's just like, is, are they ready for prime time to be accelerated by software? That's what we're debating constantly as a team internally. Yeah. Got it. That's cool. Love to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. I'm sure it's good stuff. Zooming out, you know, you see so many different companies tackling different challenges. I'm curious, you know, beyond the actual, as we've talked about deployment and innovation of hardware and stuff like that, that they might be relying on. What are some other challenges that you're tracking across firms kind of in 2023? I know that, you know, fundraising environment has definitely shifted a little bit over the last 12 to 18 months. There's also so much happening on the policy front in the US, in Europe, that ostensibly is often, you know, a good tailwind, but can certainly be hard to keep track of. What are some kind of common refrains that you're seeing at different teams trying to help teams with? And what pain points are they facing internally? So as a whole, I, I think the climate tech, climate software ecosystem has remained resilient through this period, as many have published, you know, and talked about in this community. Mm-hmm. We've done some of our own research, and actually have put this out publicly, of our own investment research, specifically on the electrifying everything subset, we were looking back at some data. We're, we'll publish this soon mm-hmm. on a class of companies that we call the top thirty software innovators that are electrifying everything. Nice. And over the past year, they—if you were to invest one dollar in those companies at the end of twenty twenty one, you would have gotten back uh, two point four dollars at the end of twenty twenty two. So in a not market bad. where we saw, <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. In a market where you know technology and software equities were down fifty percent plus in the public markets, mm-hmm. you know this class at least of thirty companies in the private markets, you know, generated one hundred forty percent return as a basket. Mm-hmm. They raised a significant amount of capital. Not one of them went out of business, and actually there's four or five acquisitions of the cohort as well. Nice. So some exits too. Yeah. Yeah, And I think if you looked across different subsets of the climate tech ecosystem, that that story holds true. So generally still really good progress, massive influx of of really excellent talent, well capitalized, Mm -hmm. well positioned to ride through whatever comes in the next few years. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's definitely my observation, especially at the earlier stage too, is like there's still a lot of funding activity. It does seem like, and based on some data I've seen from others, I think Climate Tech DC put out pretty in-depth post about this recently. Like it does seem like the later stage of the market has slowed down a little bit. And, you know, as we've seen with a lot of the companies that have kind of gone public via SPAC in the last year, although like that's a very specific model, like that hasn't always performed well for them public markets. And so like the path to exit in some capacity can be rocky. Is that kind of like the way that you see it too? Is like a little bifurcation between early and late stage or are a lot of those companies that you mentioned and attract like also playing in later stages? I think generally speaking, that characterization I would agree with. Mm -hmm. I think there are some very, very healthy, well-capitalized companies still in the private markets that will emerge soon into the public eye and will surprise people with their scale uh, the quality of the underlying economics of those businesses mm. and the combination of growth and efficiency that they have. Yeah, so I I remain bullish even on the growth stage and we actually remain quite active at that stage. We've made two investments in this past year nice. in climate software companies at the growth, you know, Series C, D stage. Right. But generally speaking, when you just look at the raw data on capital raised and whatnot certainly is down significantly year over year. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's heartening to hear that y'all are still active in that stage because, you know, some other folks might be that would have potentially participated in 2020 different funds that maybe aren't as climate tech focused have 
have potentially fallen off. So you need some folks to kind of come in from the wings and provide some more momentum. I'm also curious to, you know, ask a little bit more directly, given we started the conversation talking a little bit about characteristics of kind of clean tech 1.0, boom and bust. We're now like very firmly in climate tech 1.0 or clean tech 2.0, whatever you want to call it. How do you see, you know, a lot of key differences come to mind for me, but I also didn't really live clean tech 1.0 or didn't really operate in the wake of it. So I'd just be curious to get your take on key differences you see, as well as maybe like there are some similarities that you're slightly concerned about. Yeah, I referenced this, I think, earlier in terms of what's different this time Mm -hmm. around. I think there's no doubt that customer and consumer demand for climate and sustainability technologies is significantly greater than it was. And in most cases, that's driven because these are better products that are have better economics or or cost or value propositions than the alternatives, Mm -hmm. which again, was not always true during that last wave, you know, 10 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'd start with that from the customer lens. I think there certainly is more demand, which ultimately will translate into revenue and profits for the industry. Right. Second, I'd cite the talent. I mean, the talent coming into this space is just freaking incredible. I mean, even if we look back five years ago and compare the executives, the engineers, the salespeople that are coming into these companies to today, it's just a different level of quality, full stop, uh, which is really exciting. And it seems like if you map back to, you know, the universities now with, with all the climate schools and whatnot that are cropping up, that virtuous cycle is only going to increase. Yeah. A couple other things I'd cite at startup costs. So mm. at the Lasco, literally the, you know, the cost to get servers and and spin up a company and whatnot was significantly higher. So we've got, you know, the cloud uh, computing revolution to thank for some of that as at least as it pertains to to technology and software companies. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true of like other types of data too, whether it's like earth observation data or using drones or LIDAR or what have you, like all that stuff's gotten cheaper. Yeah, all the inputs and what it takes to make a successful climate tech company have generally been reduced over the past 10 years, mm, Yeah, which is great. And then maybe one last area to cite, and I, I think this is well-trodden, but the, the capital markets are far more robust than they were last go-around. Yeah. There's a, a far more rich ecosystem of folks at every phase and also capital forms and, and models that are better suited to different company types. Mm-hmm. So we referenced this before for a company that only needs a little bit of corporate equity, but needs a whole lot of project finance, scale up capital and capital willing to take higher risk projects on. You have the loan programs office, you know, with Jigger Shaw running it, you've got private market investors who are willing to do combinations of equity and debt. Mm. Uh, none of this existed 10 years ago, or if it did, it was in a very limited form. And so you frequently see companies get to that infamous value of death and just, you know, drive right over it and then, you know, not have any capital options to continue scaling up their businesses, which is is not the case anymore. Yeah, all really good stuff to call out. And, you know, I think to some extent also, again, not having known what the last boom and bust was like, still feels like the kind of the public sector support is also at a slightly different kind of echelon than it was back then. There were certainly tax credits and focus on building out more renewable energy and that type of stuff in US and Europe in 2008, 2010. But it feels like we've kind of kicked off a whole new ballgame in 2022 and 2023. Katie from our team, who spent a decade in policy on the renewable side before joining us, the way she says is we never had the level of long-term certainty that we have today, which is you know literally a decade forward of certainty with the IRA and you know similar policies cropping up in Europe. 
that certainty is so incredibly important for institutional investors, project developers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We've scaled the industry to this point without without really having you know comfort that you know the next year that tax credit uh, I'm using to underwrite my project will still be around. So yeah, it's it's a really good point. We can't understate how important some of the policy and legislation will be, especially once it's fully implemented. Got it. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I've been curious about for folks that have been tracking it long enough to have perspective on what it was like then and what it's like now. It's good to hear that it is significantly more robust because hopefully that means different outcomes. Creating new challenges and and problems, right? (laughs) Yeah. How do we find enough electricians and and skilled tradespeople to implement and construct all this stuff? Totally. You know, higher interest rate environment will, I think, create some financing challenges for for asset owners and folks deploying it, uh, you know, supply chain, different problems that we had last time around, but we think they can all be solved with time. Excellent. Yeah, it's kind of a good, I wanted to ask about that kind of specifically about opportunities. So, you know, there might be folks listening in that are thinking about starting their own company or, or interested in, in at least doing some research on what that might look like. What are some, you just identified a couple, what are some kind of opportunity areas where whether it's a venture backable business or not, you'd like to see, you know, someone go out and build solutions to, I don't know, maybe it's like upskilling the next generation of electricians or something completely different that comes to your mind. I'm, I'm always curious to pick people's brain about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I like just to unpack those because we, we are thinking a lot about them and would like to make venture investments in these areas. One is just upskilling and, and access to um, skilled tradespeople, construction mm. workers, et cetera. You're starting to see a you know massive uptake of, for example, oil and gas workers in the renewable energy sector because they tend to have similar useful skill sets. You know, operating complex remote environments on dangerous assets. It's you know take a wind turbine and climbing up a wind turbine and yeah. compare it to you know working on an oil rig out at sea. There's like a surprising number of similarities. Right. And so, big focus for us is how can we use technology and software to help streamline and facilitate th- that reskilling, upskilling, and generally kind of like connecting the dots between people who want to do meaningful, high paid work Mm. and ensuring they have the skills in order to do so. We think, you know, technology can play a big role there. Yeah. Supply chain is another area we spent a lot of time on. Mm. And, you know, we have limited partners who are corporates that operate businesses in this sector, like firms like Invenergy, General Electric, Excel Energy, Schneider Electric, etc., and especially on the developer side, supply chain has probably been the most frustrating challenge of the past two years. And you know that's in part driven by some of the regulations that have come down around ethical sourcing, mm-hmm. but it's also just you know supply chain constraints around access to minerals, which we need to mm-hmm. you know obviously again as a physical equipment manufacturing oriented challenge, like we just need to make more of this <laughs> stuff. But we do think there is a mechanism for technology and software to help with a few of the challenges as well. Yeah, very cool. That's something I've definitely been paying more attention to is that conversation around critical minerals, metals, the growth and demand that we're going to get for those next 10 to 20 years. But yeah, I think you're right. Even if it's just in better forecasting where that demand is going to show up and how it's going to grow, like that's a key input, obviously, for the companies that go out and actually mine this stuff and invest in CapEx to be able to do that mining. So there's some smoothing out that can be done on that front. That's right. Can always open the floor to like any other big stories in climate in general that you're paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit about something that we've covered a lot internally recently, mm. which is could be interesting for that whole discussion around the growth stage as well. We've started to see the public markets open up for climate tech mm. with the Next Tracker IPO. Yeah, it's like the first real example we've had in a while of a picks and shovel play mm. in renewable energy and climate coming to market 
being completely oversubscribed from a you know an investor demand perspective and having again really really compelling underlying fundamentals right. if you kind of tear down the financials of that company yeah we think that portends a five year run of similarly oriented businesses in solar and EVs in you know, asset management and community solar, like there's a number of areas where we've tracked companies for years that are now getting to that maturity. And once the IPO markets really open up, we think you'll start to see them emerging and becoming public companies, which is a really interesting trend. Nice. Yeah, I forget who it was, but there was another one in addition to Next Tracker a couple of weeks ago. It feels like the last few weeks, there's been a number of different pretty successful IPOs. There was you know, it's not a picks and shovels play, but Greenworks went public on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange last week, and they make electrical outdoor equipment, which, you know, in and of itself, important thing to electrify. But yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Like, hopefully this is a trend where you see a decent amount of successful IPOs, and that'll feed back into the earlier stages too, and continue to provide momentum there, hopefully. Yeah, one of the things I would say I have some concern about, like you said, that excellent analysis by Climate Tech VC, if you actually look at the exits from the past Five or six years in climate, yeah. Generally, sort of okay, right. mediocre. There's a few, you know, examples of, of really stellar exits, but we think soon there will be a, a run of of really excellent exits that will then continue to attract more limited partner capital into the space mm-hmm. and answer a lot of the questions that some folks still have around, you know, is this just clean tech 2.0? Yeah. <laughs> like, are we running into all the same mistakes again? And the returns in the sector, you know, might not match the hype and expectations that folks have. So I think it's really important for us to answer some of those questions as an ecosystem over the next few years. And yeah. I think entrepreneurs will, but it's something that we're certainly keeping our eye on and kind of tracking how, you know, the banks have covered that company in particular with respect to Next Tracker, how is institutional investor demand in the, as public market holders Things that you might not think about when you first launch a venture capital firm in 2018, but are now becoming relevant for us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I mean it's super important that we do get some of those big wins in the next few years. Otherwise, you do, you know, some of the folks that have joined the fray recently as climate tech investors probably start to wonder, like, okay, like we gave, we didn't see a massive amount of super successful exits in the last five years, and like if that continues for the next two or three years, that could start to to cause some concern for sure. But uh, I'm optimistic alongside you that that won't be the case. Yeah, I agree. All right, Tyler, well, this has been a great conversation. Would love to offer folks listening in, you know, where's the right place to look to keep up with the work that you're doing, the work that Energize is doing, and maybe also to, you know, explore portfolio companies for opportunities and jobs and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, our website is energize.vc. We have a job board for our entire portfolio available there. The companies are still hiring, unlike other sectors of the economy. Right. And if you're wanting to get in touch with me, my email is tyler at energize.vc. I'm happy to chat with anyone who's interested in building transformative climate software companies alongside of us. Awesome. Yeah. And for my part, anyone that reaches out to me, I'll make sure to, to connect them to you too. And yeah, we'll have to do it again in six months or a year and see if we're still tracking towards some of the same conclusions. But I'm optimistic about it all and excited that there's folks like you doing the the work of supporting these important companies. That sounds great, Nick. Thank you for having me. Yep. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.